my dear brethren and friends. In one sense, our text this evening doesn't need any introduction at all. The moment you see it in your Bibles or on the screen, it's very familiar, isn't it? It rings many bells. You've heard it so many times before, not necessarily preached upon, but at the end of many a worship service, including our own here. It is, of course, one of the great benedictions, that is, the announced blessings that we have here and there in Scripture. And so I give you for our text this evening, <clears throat> Second Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14, the very final verse of this intensely rich and personal letter, one of Paul's most personal letters to uh, the different congregation addressed by him in the New Testament. Second Corinthians 13 and verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I say to you that it is a most remarkable benediction. It's filled with truth that we may learn the doctrine of God that we need to know. And it's filled with warmth that we may truly experience and enjoy the truth of God in our hearts and souls and lives. So, here we go. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. And the title for the message, Something Beautiful. Something Beautiful. And we begin here. Our text demands it. The word of God demands it. We begin with this. Something beautiful about the Godhead. About the Godhead. First and foremost, this verse is about God. It doesn't explain God, for God is not there to be explained. Who would any of us think we are if we reckoned or announced to one another that we know how to explain God? Such an attitude, surely, would be a sign of that pride that comes before you know what? A fall. But while it doesn't explain God, it does do something very lovely and very wonderful it invites us to explore God. And there are two things uh, that I would touch on with us this evening in this matter. Remembering, we're considering at the moment something beautiful about the Godhead. So two things, and the first is this, a beautiful mystery. A beautiful mystery. Mystery is an important Bible word. We're not talking here of Agatha Christie. 
the 450 from Paddington? Or why didn't they ask Evans? Or various other classic mysteries that old Agatha wrote. We're not talking about mystery in that sense. Altogether not. Mystery in the Bible, you remember, it speaks of something which is secret. That's the clue to the word, secret. Something which is beyond our natural understanding. Something which we can't just work out for ourselves. And moreover, mystery in the scripture is not only this, the secret, but it's something which will always remain so, locked up, if you like, until the Lord God himself unlocks it, until he himself reveals himself to us. He is the revealer of himself. He does it as we were singing in that paraphrase of the 19th a moment ago. He does it in the world that he has made. The heavens declare the glory of God. But he does it very especially as well in his word. And if you're familiar with the 19th Psalm, you remember that those are the two parts to it. God revealed in his world, that's the first part, first few verses, and then the rest, God revealed in his word. But the thing is this, dear ones, that unless and until God reveals himself to us, even though he's there in his world, and even though he's there in his word, until he reveals himself to us, we can't understand him. And this is a mystery. But I'm saying to you, it is a beautiful mystery. I think I put it to you that that's the word to use, not just any old mystery. This is a beautiful ministry. It has wonder about it. And what is this mystery that is at the heart of God? Well, it's this, that God is one and that God is three. Isn't that a mystery, if ever there was one? God is one, and God is three. And because it's about God, this mystery, then it must most certainly be, and is, a beautiful and a glorious mystery. It makes us think, perhaps, of the opening of the eighth psalm. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent, or how majestic is your name in all the world there is an excellence about God a majestic nature to God which is why when we contemplate him we need to be lost in wonder love and praise It prompts us to cry out with the hymn writer, O Lord, enlarge our scanty thought. We feel sometimes, don't we, we're convicted about it in our better moments that we know so little about God, even though, may we, 
Maybe we've known him for years, decades. Think of these two aspects. Uh, God is one and God is three. Think of God is one. However much folk tell us otherwise in these days, and they don't hesitate to tell us so, there are not several or many gods, but only one. He is the one true living eternal God. The God of the Bible. The one of whom Moses speaks in Exodus when he says, Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? He is the incomparable God. He's the one who declares of himself, I am the Lord and besides me there is no other. He's the one we are to worship and adore the only one to whom the worship and adoration of creation rightly belongs. Even though folk directed in all sorts of wrong and false and erroneous directions. God is the one with whom every worship service must begin and continue and end because he would have us continually and consistently taken up with him. So he is one. But he is three. He is three. And this is a verse to be drawn, and this is a, a truth rather, to be drawn from all over the scriptures. But you and I don't have to travel any else, anywhere else but our verse tonight because it's right here before our eyes, where we have a mention of that foundational scriptural doctrine about God that we call the doctrine of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or, as in the order in our verse, Son, Father, Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, he is God. God the Father, who is the one indicated in the middle part of the verse here. He is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. And this takes us to the heart of mystery. Not three gods, but three persons in one God. And each one, note this dear ones, each one co-equal, co-eternal and co-glorious with the other. Do you understand that? Neither do I. Can you explain that? Neither can I. So what are we to do? What are we to do in the light of this blessed mystery that God is one and that God is three, the three persons in the one God. What are we to do? Well, surely we're to do what we sometimes sing. Do you remember this verse? Almighty God to thee, be endless honours done. The undivided three and the mysterious one. Where reason fails, 
with all her powers. There, faith prevails and love adores. That's what we do, dear ones, before this mystery. We come before God and fall down, bow down before him in prevailing faith and in adoring love. A beautiful mystery here as we think of something beautiful about the Godhead. But another thing about it as well, and that is a beautiful relationship. There's a beautiful relationship here. Here's the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is God the Father. Here is the Holy Spirit. Each of the persons of the Godhead mentioned in our verse. And this speaks to us of something altogether beautiful and lovely and delightful and that should cause wonderment. It's this, that the relationship in the Godhead between the three persons in the one God is a relationship of the most beautiful love and affection. When did you last contemplate the relationship within the one God of the three persons to one another? Have you dwelt on that lately? Has it figured in your praying? How do we know that there's a beautiful relationship? Well, we're told. And where are we told? Well, of course, in the Bible. What does the Father declare of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? He says this, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him or listen to him. What does the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, declare of the Father? Well, he says this, if you're dubious, it's in Proverbs 8, and it's been there all the time. This is what the Son declares of the Father. I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. And the Holy Spirit shares in this beautiful relationship completely. One of Scotland's dearest and finest in an earlier day was Samuel Rutherford of Anwath. And this is dear old Samuel Rutherford's response to this beautiful mystery and this beautiful relationship concerning the Godhead. He's speaking from the perspective of himself as a Christian. And his response to this. And this is what he says. I do not know which divine person I love the most. Father, Son, or Holy Ghost. But know that I love each of them. And need them all. And so I trust, dear ones, 
say all of us, we love each of them and we need them all. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Something beautiful about the Godhead. On we go. And the second thing that presents itself to us from our text is this. Something beautiful about the gospel. This time about the gospel. Because you can see, can't you, without having to sort of dig far in the text, that here's the gospel. You can see the gospel in our verse, can't you? You can't miss it. Because here before us are three of the greatest gospel words in the Bible. What are they? Grace, love, communion. And whilst each of these three words relate to each of the three persons of the Godhead, yet the emphasis here is presented to us in this particular fashion. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, that's the Father, you remember, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. Grace, love and communion attached to each of the persons. Uh, but Paul delineates here. He particularly attaches grace to the Lord Jesus Christ, love to God the Father, and communion of the Holy, to the Holy Spirit, even though all of these belong to all of them. We need to bask for a few moments on this February evening in grace, love, and communion, one by one. First off, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. How appropriate. Any particular verse come immediately to your mind when you think of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? How about this one from earlier on in this second to the Corinthians? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. Christ, the one to whom all riches belong, became poor. Christ's poverty brings our riches. And it's all grace, isn't it? It's all grace. So no wonder Paul writes, directed, of course, by the Holy Spirit as ever, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can all spell grace, I expect, even the youngest. G-R-A-C-E. Here's an old preacher's tag. And not just this old preacher. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. Got it? That's grace. Undeserved, unmerited, mercy, blessing, salvation, freely given to us poor, needy, helpless sinners. And I love that verse very early on in John's Gospel, 1.16 of John. Do you remember the one? Do you love it as well? Of his, referring to the Lord Jesus, 
of his fullness, of his fullness, have we all received. And then a very interesting phrase, grace for grace, or grace upon grace. If we were to translate it colloquially, rather than literally, it might be grace piled high, or one delivery of grace after another, and we've no, no, no sooner received one supply of grace than another one's coming right along behind. The constancy of grace. Do you see it? Just, just unpack that for a moment. Let's, let's just hold it there for a moment. Of his Christ's fullness, we have all received those of us who are Christians, we've all received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. What is this grace? Let's just unpack it. Electing grace as we are chosen in Christ before the creation of the world. Pardoning grace to cover all our sins, my sins not in part but the whole sanctifying grace to purify us even as Christ is pure interceding grace as he ever lives to make intercession for us restoring grace to bring us back when in our folly we have wandered away consoling grace the lifter up of the downcast Enabling grace to serve him faithfully and to go on serving him faithfully. Soul-satisfying grace. Refreshment for our souls from Christ's all-sufficiency. Upholding grace. Providing daily strength. Persevering grace. Keeping us all the way to glory. And dying grace. When the time comes. Taking us safely into heaven. We mentioned the old preachers a moment ago. Here are a couple of them. A couple of the great old boys. We love them both. John Newton. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. Philip Doddridge, grace all the work shall crown through everlasting days. It lays in heaven the topmost stone and well deserves the praise. And do you remember that this grace upon grace, what did we note there, John 1, 16? This great grace upon grace, it proceeds to us out of Christ's fullness and the, the wonder of Christ's fullness of grace. Is it however much he dispenses it to us, his fullness is never diminished. He gives grace and more grace and more grace and more grace, but however much grace he supplies, his own fullness is not diminished. The fountain of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ 
always remains full. Grace for yesterday, grace for today, grace for tomorrow, and grace, dear ones, forever. This is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't this something beautiful about the gospel? And the love of God. Remembering that the reference here is to the Father in Trinitarian terms. The love of God. And again, how very appropriate. Any verses coming to your mind straight away on this one? I've got a couple. For God so loved the world. You were thinking of that one, weren't you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, what an eternal difference between perishing and having eternal life. remember hearing of an evangelical minister in another part of the country, now in glory. And after the evening service, there was going to be a young people's meeting around at the, at the minister's home. But they got there before he did, because, of course, he was uh, meeting the congregation and chatting to whoever wanted to chat to him and so on. And eventually, uh, he got home, and there were the young people there waiting. And uh, he wondered what they'd been talking about. Uh, and they said, well, we were wondering what was the worst way to die. So he put the question to them and said, well, what conclusion did you come to? Uh, and they came up with things like this. Being eaten by a crocodile, chucked in a vat of burning oil, that sort of thing. That sort of thing. And they asked the minister, what do you think is the worst way to die? And his answer was clear and immediately. The worst way, clear and immediate. The worst way to die is still in your sins. Still in your sins. But here's the love of God the Father. Isn't this a beautiful thing about the gospel? That whosoever believes in him should not perish should not still die in our sins, but have eternal life, everlasting life. Or how about this beauty from the fifth of Romans? For God demonstrates his love towards us in this, that while we were still sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. And let's just add one more for good measure, again from earlier on in our letter this evening. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable or indescribable gift. Salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we know, is love. We know that from the Bible's statement of it. The Apostle John is real big on this, isn't he, in his first letter. God is love. And if you're wondering... Why the order we have in our text here is Son, Father, Spirit, rather than what we're more familiar with, Father, 
Son, Spirit, then surely it's because supremely it's in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that the love of God is revealed. And not only revealed, but experienced and enjoyed. And which of us can measure or describe the love of God? I mentioned one of Scotland's finest already, Samuel Rutherford. Why not have another one, Horatius Bonner? Who can attempt to describe or sum up the love of God? Well, Horatius had a go in a lovely hymn which includes lines like this. O love of God, how strong and true, eternal and yet ever new. Again, O love of God, how deep and great. Again, O heavenly love, how precious still. Again, O wide-embracing, wondrous love. Again, O love of God, our shield and stay through all the perils of the way. Eternal love in thee we rest, forever safe, forever blessed. And that's it, really, dear ones, isn't it? With regard to the love of God the Father. Eternal love in thee we rest. Forever safe. Forever blessed. Don't you think so? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the love of God. We're considering at the moment something beautiful about the gospel. And there's this third part to it from our text. And the communion of the Holy Spirit. That word communion is a lovely and expressive word. It's warm and it's inviting. It may also be translated, as it is in some Bible versions, fellowship. The communion of the Holy Spirit. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So what is Paul speaking of here? Well, again, something beautiful and something vital and very necessary. What name did Jesus give to the Holy Spirit? Do you remember? I'm thinking of this one, the Comforter, when the Comforter has come. And that's the key for us here on this matter of the communion of the Holy Spirit. Think of it this way. Think of descending, coming down, and then ascending, going up. With regard to descending, coming down, we may say that God's grace descends to us from the Father in love, through the Son in grace, to be received and applied and enjoyed by the Spirit in comfort. And then, you're still with me, aren't you? In terms of ascending, going up. The sweet and comforting, communing, or as we might say, fellowshipping, work of the Holy Spirit in us is intended to lead us more and more into a felt experience and assurance and enjoyment of the Son's grace and the Father's love. How key in all this is the Holy Spirit? We don't for one moment perish the thought. We don't for one moment pit one person of the Godhead against another. But if we're ever to know anything and enjoy anything about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ or about the love of God 
then how much we need the communion of the Holy Spirit who leads us in these things onward, onward. How much we need to pray and desire day by day for this blessed communion of the Holy Spirit. We can't do without it. So the Holy Spirit, he brings us into fellowship with himself and in all that he is in himself and in all that he does for us and in us. And he enriches our Christian lives by overwhelming us with an ever richer adoration and appreciation of the sheer beauty and wonder of the entire Godhead. Scripture's call to us, the divine call to us, is to taste and see. Are you tasting and seeing? Are you tasting and seeing the grace of our, the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you tasting and seeing the love of God, the Father? Are you tasting and seeing the communion, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit? Are you praying that you would? And it's for each and all of us. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit. Paul doesn't say just be with me, but writing to the Corinthians, he says be with you all. And in this respect, the Corinthians can stand for the entire church of God in every age, ourselves, here at Welcome Hall included. Let these things be with you all. I say, do we pray for ourselves in these matters? And do we pray for one another in these matters? That we would be led closer and closer and deeper and deeper and higher and higher, all of us individually and all of us together as part of the body of Christ, into the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit. So something beautiful about the Godhead and something beautiful about the Gospel. A word on one third thing before we're done. And that's something beautiful about the glory. Something beautiful about the glory. We can't leave the text without touching on this, however briefly. Question, can you see glory in the sense of heaven in our text? Can you see it? Look closely. Can you see it yet? Have another look. Have you seen it yet? Gaze. Scrutinize. Have you seen it? Let me explain. Remember, we've sought to highlight these three great gospel words that stand out for us here. Grace, love, communion. So three questions. Three questions. Number one. Where does grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, lead? Where does it lead? Well, what does the psalmist say of this? In one of my favourite psalms, perhaps yours too, the 84th. What does the psalmist say of God? He says, the Lord will give grace and 
glory. You see, I told you glory was here all along. The Lord will give grace and glory. Not grace on its own in the sense of salvation, though we must have that first, but grace to its very end, its end which never has an end in heaven itself. Think of it this way. Grace is glory begun below. And glory is grace enjoyed forever in heaven in God's very presence. Question two. Where does love, the love of God, lead? Well, let me ask you a supplementary. What is heaven? What is heaven? Lots of things you say. True? We could make a list. But I've got one thing in mind tonight. What is heaven? Heaven is an eternal world of love. There we shall enjoy with no sin and with no interruption God's love as we have never enjoyed it or even imagined that we could have enjoyed it before. One writer has put it this way and this this struck me. This struck me. He's just previously, before the the main quote I want to give you, he's just likened all our present lives in this world as merely the cover or the title page of a book. Not the innards, but just the cover, the title page. He's likened our, our present lives to that. And he goes on to say, looking onwards, he says this, there at last... He's sinking even to heaven, you see, into glory. There at last, we shall be beginning chapter one of the great story which no one as earth has read and which goes on forever and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Got it? Are you ready for the adventure? Every chapter in glory. Thinking of the book analogy. Every chapter is better than the one before. And third question. Where does communion, the communion of the Holy Spirit, lead? Where does that lead? Well, surely it leads to the place where our fellowship with God will be most fully and most satisfyingly experienced. And where's that? Well, it can only be one place. Heaven. Heaven. For there dwells God the Father, whom we have loved with all our hearts on earth. There dwells God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is ever to us the fairest of ten thousand And the altogether lovely one. There dwells God the Holy Spirit. Who daily leads, guides, teaches, sanctifies 
and comforts us. There in heaven, there in glory, all this awaits us. Grace leads to heaven. Love leads to heaven. Communion, fellowship with God leads to heaven. We're off to heaven. And what is heaven, dear ones? What is heaven? It's a land of grace. It's a world of love. And it's a haven of fellowship. And in bringing all the people of God safely there, the sacred three-in-one and one-in-three are solemnly pledged. So it's no wonder, really, is it, that one person wrote this stanza. On Jordan's stormy bank I stand and cast a wistful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. Not here. There. Where my possessions lie. And it's no wonder either, is it, that another one wrote this one. Through the night of doubt and sorrow onward goes the pilgrim band singing songs of expectation, marching to the promised land. And that's what we're doing, dear ones, isn't it? We're doing it individually if we're in Christ. But let's not forget this, we're doing it together if we're in Christ. What are we doing? Well, heart to heart and hand in hand We're singing songs of expectation. We're marching to the promised land. Amen.